Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. Good morning, City Bridge. How are we doing? Fantastic. If I've not had the chance to meet you, my name is David Leventhal, and it's, uh, I'm excited about getting to be with you this morning to share with you from Jonah chapter 4. This is uh, one of my favorite books of the whole Bible. Back in 1997, 1998, I was, uh, had my eye on this just adorable college student, Missy Fife, and I was trying to woo her. And the first book of the Bible we ever studied together was the book of Jonah. So all you young adults, you get you some Jonah. <laughs> we just celebrated 25 years. Uh, so I love this book, but I'm also, every time I read this book, I walk away feeling very, very challenged. And uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, hopefully you've been encouraged as David Marvin and Daniel Smith has unpacked the first three chapters of this four chapter book. And today we're going to land the plane on Jonah. And sometimes our familiarity with the book can, can uh, make it unhelpful for us because we miss some of the details. And so I'm hopeful this morning that this can be a time we can really get in deep into Jonah 4. How many of you have seen the movie, The Sixth Sense? Raise your hand. Okay, if you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil it, so sorry, but it's 25 years old, so it's kind of on you. Um, so in The Sixth Sense, Bruce Willis plays this guy, and he's, the whole movie's kind of about him trying to fix his marriage, and he's working with this young, creepy kid who says, I see dead people, and it's weird. And at the end of the film, Bruce Willis is sort of standing to the side, and his wife is on this chair, sort of asleep, and he's behind her, and she, he hears her utter in her sleep, why did you leave me? And, and Bruce Willis is like, I didn't leave you. And at that moment in the film, you hear a ring drop on the floor. And the wedding ring, uh, his, Bruce Willis's wedding ring comes underneath. He looks at his hand and he realizes he's not wearing a wedding ring. And in that moment, the film starts doing these flashbacks back to creepy dead. I see dead people, kid. But they don't know they're dead, is what he says. And in, in that moment, Bruce Willis realizes his character. I've been dead the whole film. And you're like, what? And all of a sudden, the film starts to make sense. The whole thing comes together at the very end. And that's what Jonah 4 is for us. It is the ring dropping on the floor and us realizing, oh, oh my gosh, I, I see what the Lord is doing here. It unlocks the whole book. See, the original audience of this little letter were the Jews in the Old Testament. And God wanted the book of Jonah to act as a mirror to them. They were to get to the end of the book, and the book was meant to be held up as a mirror, and they were meant to come to one conclusion, which was this. Oh, oh dear. Oh dear. I, I don't look anything like the God that I say that I serve. Oh, even worse, I, I think I'm Jonah. That was where the book was meant to drive them. I think it's meant where it's meant to drive us this morning. See, the message of the book of Jonah, I'm going to give you the answer to the test up front. Here's the big idea of chapter four. Here's the big idea of the book of Jonah. Frankly, this might be the big idea of the whole scriptures. God pursues the unlovable because he loves the unlovable. There it is. God pursues the unlovable because he loves the unlovable. And so as the Lord shows us in 2023, this truth through the book of Jonah, we are meant to hold the book up to ourselves and come to the conclusion that, oh dear, I don't think I look as much like the Lord I say I serve as I think I do. And 
I think I might be Jonah. Let me give you a quick overview of where we've been. And before I do that, I'll give you two reminders about this little book. Reminder number one, Jonah is not the protagonist in this book. Jonah is the antagonist in this book. He is not the hero. Jonah is candidly a bit of a jerk in this book. And chapter four is gonna help us understand exactly what his issue is. And I think his problem we're gonna find is sometimes our problem. The second reminder, this book is not about Jonah. It's not about the Ninevites. It's not about the fish from chapter two. It's not about the sailors from chapter one. It's not gonna be about the worm and the plant and the wind we're gonna learn about today. This book is singularly about the nature and the character of God, who as Jonah described in chapter one, is the God of heavens who made the sea and the dry land. And when we make this book about anything other than that, the nature and character of God, we are drifting off course. This book is about God, and I believe the Lord wants to use it to challenge us deeply today. So that said, here's a quick overview in case you've missed any of the last three weeks. Chapter one, God calls Jonah, his prophet. I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach to them a message of, uh, that judgment's coming, so they'll repent. Jonah says, I don't think I want to do that so much. And so he starts to take off in the other direction. That's chapter one. God sends a giant fish, um, sends a storm, and Jonah gets thrown off. A fish comes and grabs Jonah up, swallows him. Jonah spends three days in the belly of a fish. As David Marvin said, the first Uber, God says, no, I do want you in Nineveh, so I'm gonna take you from here to where I want you. That's chapter two. Chapter three, God gives Jonah a second at bat. I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach to them judgment so they'll have a chance to repent. And Jonah says, I think I might do that this time. And he heads out that way. And lo and behold, the unexpected thing happens. The people of Nineveh believed God. And there's this unbelievable corporate national, or I guess citywide repentance in Nineveh. And God relents. So that's where we find ourselves in chapter four. Three, three observations I want to make from our passage today. Observation number one is going to be found in verses one to four. Jonah saw the Lord's character and mercy in action, and he hated it. Jonah saw the Lord's character, he saw the Lord's mercy in action, and Jonah hated it. Second observation is going to be in five to eight. The Lord, however, saw Jonah's elitism, his hatred, and the Lord loved Jonah anyway. And then we're going to wrap the book up, nine to 11. The Lord saw the Ninevites' repentance, and he showed pity on them because he loved them. So that's where we're headed. Okay? You want to read the passage? Let's do it. I'm going to read the whole thing to you. I want you to hear it all in one swap. Swap, that's not the right word. One swath. Swath, that's the right word. So I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll go back and unpack. I'm going to start in the last verse in chapter 3. Can I give us a running start? Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Chapter 4. But it, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Verse five, so Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he would see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant 
and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. When dawn came up the next day, the Lord uh, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So quickly, here's what's going on. The Ninevites repent of their evil. The Lord relents of his judgment. Jonah recoils in horror. He complains to the Lord about it bitterly. So God provides an object lesson through a plant, through a worm, through a scorching east wind. We're gonna see that Jonah fails to grasp the object lesson. And so the Lord, using small words and short sentences, explains it to him and gets the final word. That said, let's go back through and let's unpack it a little more slowly. Verses four, one to four. Jonah saw the Lord's character and mercy in action and he hated it. Here's where the ring drops in the, in the book. We see the reason for Jonah's running in chapter one. We see the reason that the Lord sent the fish to him in chapter two. We see the reason that the Lord produced a second opportunity for Jonah to get to Nineveh. Everything in this book points to this fact. God wanted to give the Ninevites the opportunity to repent. The vile, violent idolaters, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, he wanted his mercy to go after them. And he was not gonna let his little punk prophet stand in the way. Why? Because God pursues the unlovable because God loves the unlovable. And this relenting from the disaster sends Jonah into a tailspin. The Hebrew text reads, literally, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. Jonah has this awful aroma of self-righteousness, of elitism, of nationalism, and he mixes that in with a heavy dose of hatred toward the Assyrians. It's not, frankly, that Jonah is opposed to divine mercy. You'll recall in chapter two, when he's about a thousand feet under the sea, he's more than welcome to receive the Lord's mercy. In fact, Jonah declares in chapter two, salvation belongs to the Lord as long as it's towards me and not towards them. That's what's happening. Jonah was great with mercy for him, but he wanted justice for them. See, what Jonah really wanted was to give his message for the Ninevites to not respond and for God to send the whole city to hell. That's what Jonah wanted. He hated the Assyrians. He absolutely did not want them to repent. Jonah says three times in this passage, three times. He's so ticked off three times, I wanna die. And what he uses, <laughs> ironically enough, as his justification for his anger, is a, he quotes from Exodus uh, 34. Jonah describes God as uh, the Lord as a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That shows up, the first time we see that in our Bible is Exodus 34. Comes on the heels of the Israelites 
being saved by God out of Egypt, going to the wilderness. God sets up the law. Israel's like, we will follow the law. Yay, God. And then Moses goes on the mountain and he's up there a little bit longer. And so they make a golden calf. And they immediately drop the ball on the covenant. Immediately. And out of that train wreck, God says to Moses uh, in Exodus 34, 6 to 7, the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Who had been the primary recipient of this slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love? It was Jonah's folk, the Jews. I'm about 47% Jew. It was my folk. And over and over and over again, we see that they are the primary recipients of God's grace. And now, Jonah uses that as an indictment on the Lord for applying it to some Gentiles who are wicked. That's what's going on here. Did you know that that little description of God is the primary way God is described in your Bible? It's quoted nine times in your Old Testament. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger. You want to know what God is like? Here you go. God is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. And it doesn't matter whether you come from a stiff-necked, stubborn people like the Jews is the way God describes in the Old Testament, or you are a part of a Gentile, godless, violent, conquer-the-earth people. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. As long as we have breath today, which by the way, is not guaranteed, the Lord's reflexive response is grace, mercy, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And so God asks Jonah a question. Actually, God asks Jonah three questions in this, in this uh, chapter. After Jonah throws his little temper tantrum, God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And so what the Lord is really asking, what's embedded in the question is, is this. So Jonah, I send you to let the Ninevites know, Jonah, that, that judgment's coming. And they repent. And in my divine sovereignty as the God of heavens, as you've described me, I decide to uh, spare them because they've repented. And now you're angry in fact, you're so angry that you want to die? Is that what's going on here? What does Jonah say? He doesn't reply. And his non-response communicates, yeah, from a place of self-righteousness and bitterness and hatred, his non-response says, yeah, I, I have a right to be angry. I do. In fact, I'm so put out with this whole thing, candidly, the whole assignment, I'm put out with the results, I'm put out with all of it, and I would rather die. So yeah, I'm angry, and frankly, Lord, I feel justified in my anger. And it's at this point, it would be really easy to just go hard to the hole on Jonah. I mean, what a guy. But here's the thing. I get Jonah's perspective. I really do. And I have a hunch that if I'd been there and God had asked me to go to the Assyrians, I bet I would have said something similar. I might not have headed to Spain. I might have headed to Colorado. But it wouldn't have been too far off, I bet. 
See, we can be a lot like Jonah. In fact, before the nine o'clock service, I was sitting in that chair over there. Five minutes before I'm supposed to come up here and teach on this. And a name popped across my brain. Someone that had hurt me. You think my reflexive response was mercy? Five minutes before I'm supposed to get up and teach on this? Mm-mm. It wasn't, unfortunately. And so I want you to imagine for, your mo- for a moment that you are Jonah. Put yourself in Jonah's shoes. And the Lord comes to you and says, I want you to go to that person or those people who have hurt you the deepest, who have maybe you feel like damaged you beyond repair. And I want you to go to them and I want you to proclaim a message that hopefully will lead to their repentance. How are you going to feel about that task? Imagine you're an Israeli father or mother and you've got a teenager, a young adult son or daughter that went to a music festival in Southern Israel on October 7th and they were gunned down by terrorists from Hamas and God says to you, I'd like for you to go into Gaza and I'd like for you to talk to Hamas, preach to them so that they have a chance to repent. How are you feeling about that task? I can tell you how I feel about it. Maybe for you, it's, maybe it's your dad who ran off and left you and your mom to figure it out on your own. Maybe it's somebody in your past who hurt you, who abused you. Maybe, maybe you're still being hurt and abused by that person. Maybe it's you've been treated unjustly because of the way you look or the color of your skin or your ethnicity. Maybe you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend and, and they convinced you that, that you were the one and that sex before marriage wasn't really a big deal and you crossed that line and then they left and you feel now taken advantage of and empty. The people who betrayed you, who hung you out to dry, who comes to your mind? How are you feeling about that assignment? If we're honest, and I look, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. I got the mic. I, there's a lot of times I'm not at all excited about repentance. I want justice. I want judgment. I know exactly what it feels like to have a mercy for me, justice for that mentality. I know exactly what that feels like. It's not a fun feeling, but I know how it feels. And my guess is that there are others in this room who feel something similar when you think about that person or those people, when you fill the gap in with whoever that person is. I get it. God gets it. See, when you really think about it, you come to the conclusion that God is not like me. God is not like you. He loves humanity, all humanity, especially the unlovable, rebellious prophet kind and the unlovable, wretched, evil Assyrian kind. And he wants them to come to know him. Why? Because God loves the unlovable. That's his reflexive nature. And listen, in case you're wondering, forgiveness is not the same thing as removing liability. The people that have hurt you, that have hurt me, their repentance doesn't do away with the fact that there's still consequences. It doesn't mean that what they did was wrong. It just means that they have now been made right with God and now we've got to deal with the early con- earthly consequences. Don't be ridiculous. So God's word doesn't teach that, that oh, they, you just forget about it, just move on. Here's what we need to remember. God will deal with every injustice. Maybe you'll see it on this earth. Maybe you have to wait. But nobody gets away with anything with the Lord. 
And you can have that dealt with through Jesus or you can stand before God on your own and I don't think it's gonna go too well with you. And if you're stuck there, like I have been stuck there at times, God's not mad at you, he gets it. He understands what it feels like to be betrayed. He understands what it feels like to want a different path. Jesus would say, if there's any other way, any other way to do this, let's, can we have that conversation? And so just like God gets it with us, the Lord understood Jonah and he wasn't mad at Jonah, but he does want Jonah to move out of that spot. So he takes Jonah through an object lesson to help our friend regain his footing. And that's where we get this second observation. The Lord saw Jonah's elitism and hatred and he loved him anyway. So Jonah goes out of the city. He's hoping maybe they'll turn and God will wipe the city out. And so he's praying for a Sodom and Gomorrah style destruction. We don't know how much time elapses between verses four and verses five, but he goes up and he builds this little tent to see what happens. And the Lord pursues him. The Lord's not mad at him. The Lord doesn't stick him back in the belly of a whale. The Lord is going to just say, I want you out of this spot. This is not a good place for one of my people to be. So let me move you through it. And he's going to use a plant, a worm, and a scorching east wind to help Jonah see how large the gap is between the Lord and Jonah. It's a pretty vast chasm. What I want to do now is in this section, there are some details that if you or I were an Old Testament Jew who had been raised in the law and the prophets, we would read this and these things would pop out to us because it's sort of our bread and butter. But you and I are not Old Testament Jews who have been steeped in the law and prophets. And so I want to, I want to highlight some things that, that you might have, that would be easy to overlook as you're reading through this quickly. The first is um, that there are some repeated words. And I'm a big fan of writing your Bible. Don't be afraid. You are not writing on the original scriptures. It's okay. Circle. And we're going to see in this chapter three times, and it also happens in chapter uh, one, we're going to see the word God appointed, the phrase God appointed, something to do something. And so in this verse, we see God appoints a plant to grow over Jonah's head, and then God appoints a worm to gnaw that little plant to kill it. And then to make sure Jonah gets it, God appoints a scorching east wind to make Jonah soup uncomfortable, okay? Appointed three times. In fact, if we look at the book in its entirety, we see that not only are the, the, the plant and the worm and the wind obeying God, we see that the fish obeys God. We see that the sailors in chapter one come to fear God. We see that the Ninevites come to repent. Everybody's doing their part except the one guy who's called by God and is a member of the covenant community. He's the one guy that's not doing the very thing he's called to do. And the author wants to make sure you get it. Everybody's doing their part except God's chosen prophet. Second detail, it says that God appointed a scorching east wind. Here's a trivia for you. What is the most frequently mentioned wind in the Bible? Say east wind. Exactly. It shows up 19 times in your Old Testament, the east wind. In fact, Hosea 13, 15 says that the east wind is the wind of the Lord. And it means judgment. In Genesis 41, that a scorching east wind brings the famine in that ultimately led to Joseph's kind of uh, rise in prominence in Egypt. In Exodus 10, the scorching east wind brought the locusts to Egypt, which by the way, talk about slow to anger. God gave the Egyptians 10 at bats to figure it out. That's how slow he was to anger. And in, in the, the locusts, he brings the east wind to bring it. What's the point? The reader would have seen this. Someone that understood, they would have popped to him. Oh, God's sending an east wind to his prophet. <laughs> oh dear, Jonah is being judged by the Lord with a scorching east wind. Scorching east wind. 
And the third uh, detail, I've got a slide for this, is uh, some of the proper, the changing of the proper nouns. So I want you to look at this slide, don't worry about the words, just look at the colors, okay? Everything highlighted in blue, that is in the Hebrew text, Yahweh. It's, it's all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see that in your Bible, that is the English translator's way of letting you know that's the word for Yahweh. It is the covenant name for God for the nation of Israel. It's a relational name. It means God's like, I got you, you're my covenant people. And when you see the words in green, that is the Hebrew word Elohim. That's sort of what we would call a generic name for God. It's used a lot. In fact, it's also used of mighty kings, Elohim. And so what you notice, this is just chapter three and four. I needed a bigger monitor to pull this to one and two in. But what you notice in the book of Jonah is this. When God is dealing with his prophet as a member of the covenant community, you see the blue pop up, Lord. God's having conversations with Jonah as a member of the covenant community. When God is dealing with the Assyrians or the sailors in chapter one, you see that it shifts to Elohim, God, because those people are not a member of the covenant community. And then it repeats when Jonah has his temper tantrum, you see it go back to the covenant name. The only exception to this is in the middle of this object lesson, where it's the, per, the pronoun, I'm sorry, not the pronoun, the noun, the proper noun switches from the Lord to God. And so what we're meant to see here is that when God takes Jonah through this object lesson, he changes his noun from Lord, covenant, to God, Elohim. And what's the point? The point is that God, God wants the readers to see, oh, Oh, so not only did God bring a scorching east wind, the way the author has recorded this, he wants us to know by removing Yahweh, the Lord, that he's treating Jonah like a Ninevite. Jonah, you want to get bitter? You want to get frustrated at what I'm doing with the unlovable Ninevites? Let me show you what it feels like to face in a very like minor way the judgment of God. That's what's happening. Somebody who's steep would have seen that. Sometimes we read so fast, we just blow over those details. You should look at those details. The scripture writers didn't just grab pen and quill and slap whatever they thought about on the, on the parchment. They were slow. They were thoughtful under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This passage, your scripture is rich with details. If we'll just slow down and observe and notice things. So that's what the, the object lesson is. And so uh, God, in observation three, the Lord saw the Ninevite repents and he showed them pity because he loved them. So um, God asks Jonah, uh, Jonah gets all upset about the plant and God says, do you do well to be the plant? Which is God's way of saying, Jonah, did you figure out the point of the object lesson? And Jonah didn't respond to the kind of the same question. Do you do well to be angry? He didn't respond the first time, but he certainly responds this time. And Jonah's answer is, yeah, again, well, I have every right to be angry. In fact, I'm so freaking angry, I would just assume die. The object lesson didn't take. So the Lord pursuing his rebellious prophet slows down, small words, short sentences, let me help you see what I was trying to accomplish through this object lesson that didn't take. And so the Lord pursues Jonah for the next couple of verses. And here's effectively how the conversation goes. Okay, Jonah. I get it. You're angry about the plant. I get it. Let's talk about the plant, the, the, the plant, the dead plant here. I just want to remind you, Jonah, I, I sent you the plant a whopping 24 hours ago. It's been in your life a day. By the way, Jonah, you'll recall that you didn't plant it. You didn't tend it. You didn't make sure it had water. You didn't fertilize it. You didn't keep the bugs off it. 
you didn't do anything for this plant. And if we're honest, Jonah, the only reason you're excited about that plant was because it served your needs and interests. And look at how bent out of shape you are about the plant, Jonah. It's completely undone you. Now, just imagine for a moment, Jonah, just pretend with me here. Pretend that you were the gardener, that you actually planted the thing and you tended to it and you gave it water and you fertilized it and you kept the squirrels from taking things off of it and it died. How would you feel if that had been the case? See, Jonah, here's the thing. That's how I feel about the Ninevites. The people you are so excited to see wiped off the planet, they're mine. They're my people and I love them. And yes, of course I see their wickedness. Of course I see their evil deeds. And no, that doesn't make it all right. But if I don't step in, if I don't grant them mercy or give them the opportunity, they're, they're gonna be judged. And I don't want that, Jonah. It's full of people that I love and they've got ribeyes, a bunch of ribeyes that I care about the cows. So no, Jonah, I don't wanna destroy them. I know you do, but can't you see, Jonah, how desperate I am to provide mercy to these people? Can't you see that, Jonah? And I think in this moment, it's probably fair to ask, though Jonah was like super excited about this plant. Probably good to ask, what are the things in our lives, what are the plants in our lives, the things that we value more than people? Jonah was way more discouraged about this plant than he was the Assyrians dying. Is it for you? Is it your checkbook? Is it your, your kids' sports? Your reputation? Your career? Your image in the community? What are the things that you're valuing more than the plant? I'm sorry, more than the people. It's the question that God is asking Jonah, trying to help him see. I think it's a question he wants us to know today. And by the way, the book ends and we don't know what happened, which is genius. Because every time you read this book, you're meant to think, crud, there's no resolution. I don't know what Jonah did. Mirror, uh, oh, daggummit, it's me, I'm Jonah. But it didn't stop with Jonah. This issue, this Jonah-ness kept going. And when Jesus showed up on the scene about 800 years later, who, by the way, scripture says Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So the heart of God expressed in Jonah, we get to see in the flesh in Jesus. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, there's a whole bunch of first century Jonas. They're called Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees. And these guys go a click further to the right. Not only do they like hate the Assyrian type people, the Gentiles, but even within the Jewish family, they're like, hey, there are some that are lovable within our own family. And there's a lot that just the Lord's not too interested with. And Jesus shows up and he goes hard to the hole at these men. And we see this clearly, most clearly, maybe in all the gospels in Luke chapter 15, which we've mentioned a couple times over the last several weeks. And it's a, a parable. It's a single parable with three stories. Lost Sheep, one out of 100, lost coin, one out of 10, lost son, one out of two. And I want you to notice how Jesus sets this parable up. It says in Luke 15, one to two, now the tax collectors and the sinners, those are the Assyrians of the day, if you will, were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribe, the Jonas of the day, they grumbled and they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. This parable, these three stories, were not meant for the people around Jesus. They were directed towards the Jonas of the day. And what were they trying to communicate? All three stories communicate the same truth. God pursues the unlovable because God loves the unlovable. Or in this language, God loves to find lost things. Is how 
Luke would record it. And so in the, second, in the back half of Luke 15, you get the prodigal son, the younger son, who again, is part of the family, says, hey, I want my inheritance now. I'm kind of wishing you were dead now, dad, so I can get my stuff. So the father gives it to him. Son goes off and squanders it in loose living, which I think is a funny way of saying what he did. And he comes to his senses and begins to work his way back. He's going to try and come on as a hired hand. And when the father sees him, when the father sees him in a distance, he runs. He slaps a ring on his finger, puts a robe on him, kills the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. Because that which was lost, that which was unlovable has now been found. And the older brother goes apoplectic. He cannot believe what the father is doing. And he's offended and he's discouraged and he's confused. And the father says to the older son, he was lost. Yes, he was unlovable. But I I live to find things that are lost. I live to pursue the unlovable. And just like Jonah, Luke 15 ends with no resolution. We don't know if the older brother ever gets it together to go back inside the house to join the party for the younger brother. Same issue Jonah had, same issues the Pharisees had. And I, my guess is it's an issue for us today. And listen, it'd be easy. I mean, Jonah, <laughs> such a train wreck. It would be so easy just to poke and pick at Jonah because he's such a hot mess. But let's be honest. I'm Jonah. You're Jonah. Some of us can't believe at times that God would grant mercy to that person or those people. We can be like the older brother of Luke 15, just beside ourselves that God would welcome that person back into the family. We can be like the Pharisees, stunned that God would hang out, that God would pursue sinners and tax collectors, and tax collectors were folks that sold them soul for money to the Roman Empire. They're the worst of the worst. Prostitutes, those caught in sin, those who don't know their right hand from their left hand. That's what Jonas, God says about the Assyrians. They don't know what's right or wrong. They're like little children. They don't know right and wrong. Jonah, they don't have the law like you do. They don't have the prophets. They don't have a word for me. They're not in a covenant relationship, Jonah. What do you expect? And yet God still moves to them. So if you're in this room and and that's where you are, that's where I was two hours ago in that chair right there, we need to repent now. Every time it happens, every time you feel that flare up like I cannot believe, God wants me to have a conversation with that person to help them move towards God. Repentance is the path forward. Did you know that Every Yom Kippur, which in the Jewish uh, religion is, their, is the most holy day of the year for them. It's their, it's their Super Bowl, if you will, which is, I'm sure, going to discourage them if they hear this. But it's like their big day of the year, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. In the afternoon service, they read the book of Jonah in its entirety. Every Yom Kippur. Why? Because the book of Jonah has maybe better than any place in the Old Testament. What does repentance look like? And who gets to give us the example? The Assyrians. The Assyrians provide the example of what true repentance looks like. Can you believe that? And listen, if you're in this room and maybe you don't know if 
Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe you've run into a Jonah. There's a decent chance it might've been me. And, and we've, in our self-righteousness, in our holy huddle, we've put off the aroma of elitism. And so you're like, I, if that's what God's like? I'm good, because that looks awful. I want you to know, I'm sorry. And I want to repent on behalf of any of the Jonas you've run into, especially if it was me. You hang around with me long enough and it will be me. That's not how the people of God are supposed to look. That's not how most of us want to look. But this process of becoming like Jesus, called, the Bible calls it sanctification, that process is hard and it is slow and it is arduous. And sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. Two steps forward, one step back until we die as the Lord refines us. And I want you to know, if you run into a Jonah in this room, and that's the reason why you're like, I'm not interested. I get it. I get it. I would ask you to consider not the broken image of the father that sometimes we present, but the actual image, which is this. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are, whether you're an Assyrian and your life has been marked by violence and bloodshed. God pursues the unlovable. It doesn't matter if you're a tax collector who has sold out your soul for money, for personal gain. It doesn't matter if you're a sinner whose life is marked by immorality or pursuit of self-righteousness. It doesn't matter if you just think you're good enough. And in your pride and in your self-righteousness, you think, I don't know that I need God because I mean, I kind of got my stuff going on and everything seems to be working out okay. I want you to know that God is pursuing you. Right now, God's pursuing you. And if you're watching online or you're watching at some point down the road, God is pursuing you because God loves the unlovable and he pursues the unlovable. God loves finding things that are lost. And we want you to know this can be a safe place for you. It's not gonna be a perfect place because, well, I'm here if nothing else, but it's gonna be a safe place for you to understand and unpack who Jesus is. You are welcome at the table of God. We want you to come and hear about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. So much so that he sent his one and only son to come walk our dusty roads, to come interact with a bunch of knuckleheads and he nailed it. Jesus did it perfectly and we killed him for it. But in that death, the full unbridled wrath of God that Jonah was so desperate to fall on the Assyrians falls on Jesus. All of it. The wrath that sometimes I want for people, that certainly Jonah did, that the Pharisees did, God said, I'm gonna send my wrath and it's gonna go on one person. And if you will but trust in him, and you will agree that you're a hot mess. You're a train wreck. You're a sinner. That's what the Bible calls it. You have missed the mark. You were born in iniquity and conceived in sin. But thankfully for you, God pursues the unlovable. And if you will by faith say, hey, I, I can't do it on my own, but I'm gonna trust this Jewish carpenter that he did it right. And he says, if I believe in him, I can be forgiven. And the wrath that he took for sin, he can apply it to me and I can be made right with God.
Why in the world would God do that? Because God loves and pursues the unlovable. That's why. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about CityBridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.